Hi, everybody. I am uh, Tony Ganser of 90.3 WCPN. Uh, like Stephanie said, there is going to be an opportunity for you to ask questions, and, and I say this every time, but that really is one of the best parts. If we miss something or you want to go more in-depth into a topic, we'll do the best we can to answer them and address them. Uh, even though this region is, is a sensitive and complicated region, we will do our best. Uh, just to kick it off, I'd like, Jim, could you say a few words about your career and how this book came about, uh, because you have a, a fascinating story, and this is a fascinating story. Well, thanks. Hey, it's fantastic to be back in, in Cleveland. It's my hometown. I uh, haven't lived here for quite a while, but uh, it is wonderful to be back. That deserves, yeah. Name Cleveland, you're coming back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, gosh, uh, a, a, a quick snapshot. So I um, became a journalist out of college, and uh, wound up working for the Associated Press in New York, and then went to Dubai, uh, sorry, went to Iraq after, the, uh, after we invaded Iraq, and worked there for a year and a half, then got sent to Dubai, uh, stayed there for about four and a half years, and that is where I got, uh, between those two places, got very interested in energy, uh, and especially energy consumption in that region. I mean, you, you always hear about that region as a supplier of energy to the world, but you don't normally think about it as a, as a, as a consuming region. So that's where I got very interested in that um, and decided, so I wrote a book about Dubai, and then once I finished that, didn't have anything to do uh, uh, immediately thereafter, so I decided, well, academia would be a nice job. So, so I uh, uh, applied for a PhD program, got in, moved to the UK, did a PhD, and got hired by Rice University in Houston, where I live now. Uh, there's a think tank that's part of Rice University called the Baker Institute, uh, started by former Secretary of State Baker back in the 90s. Uh, and that's where I've been working for the past five years. So I'm a, uh, a fellow for energy and geopolitics at the Baker Institute in Houston. So um, let's, let's dig in right there. This particular book, Energy Kingdoms, you're looking at consumption and, and that aspect, as you said, we don't really think about that. We always think of uh, oil being a resource that is either fought over or is, is the cause of, of geopolitical strife in the region, but they're dealing with their own problems with energy. Yeah, so it, it you know it's got a it's an interesting history. I'll, I can give you a little sort of a, a, a quick snapshot. But these countries were extremely poor um, when they discovered oil, right? So in the 1930s, if you think about you know countries like Somalia uh, or you know Eritrea or you know those countries were, were more developed uh, than the Gulf. I mean these were very you know underpopulated, very small populations. A lot of you know, uh, 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 you know, nomadic people lived in lived there. There were some small towns, but you know, the climate was, you know, and is uh, so harsh that most folks didn't really want to live there. So you get you get folks that would show up, uh, look around, and then leave because there was no air conditioning or you know electricity or running water, paved roads. You know, no one had ever had a cold drink, uh, and so. When they discovered oil, um, uh, you know, it was U.S. and British companies discovered oil. These were basically the perfect countries for exporting oil because there was nobody there. They had no demand uh, of their own, and you could export everything uh, to the world. So they became really the engines of growth for, uh, for energy consumption, for, for oil uh, around the world. But as happened, 
happens when you know your, your income starts to grow, uh, your energy needs start to increase, and also you have a, there was a lot of in, in, inward migration. So these countries went underwent really fast economic growth uh, and really fast population growth. Okay, uh, and and at the same time, they subsidized uh, energy prices. Okay, so uh, transportation fuel, so you know. Uh, for uh, gasoline and diesel, as well as electricity. And since there's no fresh water, very little fresh water in that part of the world, they desalinated by distilling fresh water from seawater. So they subsidized that as well. Uh, so those, those three factors, fast growing incomes, fast growing populations, and extremely low prices on energy created this kind of, uh, you know, sort of perfect storm, uh, if you will, for energy demand. And, you know, if you look at it over 40 years, you know, year by year it was, you know, it was growing, but once you have 40 years of compounded annual growth of, you know, seven to nine percent a year, that is, uh, uh, suddenly that got to be a big problem. So that's kind of, you know, my book looks at that history of energy demand and then how that really fast energy growth uh, started to get them into trouble. Um, and then, I don't know if I can... Uh, continue with that theme a little bit. Sure. Yeah, please. So the the political systems in the in in that part of the world are uh, built. They're autocratic. They're tribal autocracies, right? You've got these ruling families uh, that are uh, you know they're sort of tribal clans, and they've always ruled those countries by uh, through patronage, by giving basically giving stuff to people to keep them happy, and. So a, a key form of patronage turned out to be oil, right, and energy products. So, so um, after they discovered oil, they started, you know, the, those low prices weren't just a favor for uh, for people to keep them, uh, you know, to, you know, because they, they needed oil or they needed energy, uh, but it was also part of the governing bargain, right? This, you know, you, you give me support and uh, you know, I'll, you know, I'll raise your standard of living and I'll give you cheap or free energy. So a lot of the academics around this thought that uh, uh, that um, this was a, a right, a right of citizenship, uh, and it was you know after 40 years of growth, uh, the political system started to have some some pretty major stresses in it because this is you know their main economic asset and it was becoming uh, uh, you know it was, it was you know it, it, you know it was part of their the political uh, equation in these countries. So uh, some big stresses came up came came out because of that. I feel like, and maybe this is just an assumption. Uh, quick, do something with the mics. Okay. Well, check, check, check. Check, check. Hey, we're back. All right. Uh, Maybe it's just my assumption or, or misconception, but I feel like from an American perspective, we often have a, a simplified understanding of energy and the energy relationship. That as we talked about, these, these countries typically, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, Iraq, tend to be exporters, and that's the relationship. We get the oil from them, that's, and we, we pay them, or we offer them military support, or even just military presence, and that's the relationship. You talk about patronage, what you get for what you get. Um, can, you, can you explain why that's wrong, <laughs> and why that's maybe too simple, and, and the relationship isn't like that anymore? 
Well, there's a few different relationships uh, that, that, that we're talking about here. So, so the one that my book is mainly about is about the internal political uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, dynamics of these six countries, right? So there's six Gulf monarchies, right? So Saudi Arabia is the big one. And you've got Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, and Oman, right? So uh, uh, they're all absolute monarchies, right? I mean, there's you know, very little democracy going on. Kuwait has, um, you know, is, is the closest to, you know, has, has, has some, you know, some democratic components to its rule. But, but um, they, they have a, um, uh, you know, this, this relationship of um, the kind of patronage-based governance where energy is used as one of the tools of patronage. Uh, with which you know the uh, you know the, the ruling families buy support of their people, um, but they also they have geopolitical relationships with with importing countries, with the West, with the OECD countries, the big uh, uh, developed countries, um, and that's a different relationship, right? So that is um, you often hear it described as uh, you know an oil for security. Trade, right? So the U.S. keeps about thirty-five thousand troops in that region, uh, and you know we don't do it because we get oil from directly uh, uh, from that region, but because that region is has strategic importance because it's such a large exporter of oil to other countries around the world. I mean, uh, you know, China, Japan, South Korea, uh, get you know India now. Um, you know, so, you know, Europe, uh, uh, those countries get a lot of their oil from the Gulf countries, and that allows global commerce to, to continue, and if it were interrupted, um, you know, the U.S. is, we get a little bit of oil from, from Saudi Arabia and a little bit of oil from Iraq, but not, you know, uh, we don't really directly import that much oil from that part of the world, but if there were a problem, with getting that oil out and getting it to market, getting it through the Straits of Hormuz and you know uh, uh, through the Straits of Malacca into you know importing countries, there'd be a big problem for the world, right? For global commerce, uh, and it would quickly impact us. Uh, it would immediately impact us here in the U.S. In ter- you know in in, in 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 terms of higher energy prices, which would you know trigger you know higher gasoline prices, uh, in, and then you know when when oil prices go up, it, it quickly spirals into inflation and, and everything else. So, uh, so there are uh, pretty strong reasons why, you know, we spend between 50 and 100 billion dollars a year keeping, you know, those 35,000 troops on, on land bases and on, on ships uh, around the Gulf. So two different relationships. I talked a bit more about the first one, about the internal politics, but the, the geopolitics of that are also, uh, uh, you know, they're just as important. If we can walk down that road just a, a tiny bit more, especially with Saudi Arabia, because I, I feel like there, there are so many uh, difficult issues with Saudi Arabia between human rights abuses, between the exertion of power in the region, you look at, at Yemen, what's happened in Yemen, and what the United States has done or not done to check, not to mention Khashoggi and, and the murder what the U.S. has done or not done with Saudi Arabia. How much would you say of that is dependent on the oil relationship, or is it more this extended sphere like you were talking about, that just keeping allies getting material and, and not disrupting the Strait of Hormuz? 
Well, I think a lot of it depends on oil. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia cuts a much larger figure on, you know, the international stage because of, not just because it has oil and it's a large oil exporter, it exports about, about 7 million barrels a day, um, you know, which is a lot, right? So it's the number one oil exporter. Uh, it's no longer the number one oil producer. It's actually the number three now. Uh, the U.S. now is number one and Russia is number two. Um, but most, you know, the U.S. and Russia use a lot more oil at home. We, we, you know, so you know, we're still a net oil importer here in the U.S. But Saudi Arabia has is is special among all oil importers globally, oil exporters globally, in that it has spare oil production capacity. Right. So the Saudis are producing somewhere around ten or ten and a half million barrels a day of crude oil right now. Uh, they can, if they wanted to, crank that up and produce another two million barrels a day of oil, uh, of crude oil, right? So they could crank that up to, they say, 12 and a half million. Now, they've never had it that high, uh, but that's, you know, so they've invested, you know, the tens of billions of dollars in building oil infrastructure and having production capacity that they don't use, right, that sits idle. No profit-making company would ever do that, right? ExxonMobil would never spend $30 billion to, 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 to get an oil field tapped and to build pipelines and storage facilities and processing facilities that sits idle, right? Their shareholders would revolt and, you know, it, it would be a big problem for them. Um, but the Saudis do that because they get geopolitical power uh, from this. Uh, you know, they get a, a, you know, a much larger, uh, you know, sway and influence in international affairs. They also get hard security protection from the United States that I was just talking about. So they you know, we spend, you know, tens of billion dollars a year, right? So up to hundred billion dollars a year protecting that that region. And one of the reasons that we do that is because Saudi has that spare capacity. Now you might ask, why is spare capacity so important? Okay? It it you know when the US you know, one of the ways you know, I sort of say, you know, uh, kind of off the cuff in my book that, you know, uh, the Saudis protect the U.S. motorist from U.S. foreign policy, right? So that's kind of a, a snide way of saying that, you know, when the U.S. intervenes in the Middle East or when there's an outage, when there's a civil war or, you know, a big hurricane or, you know, a wildfire in the, you know, in the, in the Canadian oil, per, you know, uh, oil sands regions, um, when there's a problem with the oil supply, the Saudis step in, they bring that spare capacity, turn those valves and bring that, that oil online. So they are strategically uh, crucial to keeping oil. You know, oil prices already fluctuate a lot and they're, they're pretty volatile. They'd be a lot more volatile if Saudi Arabia was not, didn't have that spare capacity. So that makes them even more important. So when they misbehave in various ways and, you know, uh, engage in, in, in bloody wars, uh, you know, around the region or, you know, uh, you know kill a journalist who, uh, you know, who, who, who was writing for the Washington Post who I actually had met uh, at, at one time, um, uh, you know, they uh, tend to get a bit more, uh, uh, you know, you know I want to, they, they, a bit more leeway, let's say, than, uh, you know, than somebody else might, than another country might. What if they didn't get as much leeway? Are, are there things Saudi Arabia would stand to lose a, a side of the economics if, if people turned away from the oil or they couldn't export as much, uh, especially to the West, but, but anywhere just in general? So they would, yeah, I mean, if, so if, if, 
Saudi Arabia wasn't able, didn't have that spare capacity, or if oil lost its importance, if there was a replacement fuel, substitute fuel, if it, you know, oil is, right now, it's the only transportation fuel we have, right? It has a monopoly on transportation, right? I mean, you can still, you know, not a, it's not a total monopoly, right? You can still sail in a sailboat and use the wind, right? You can ride your bike, um, you know, you, you, there's some electric cars, you can charge your battery, uh, and there's, you know, there's a tiny fraction of, of, of transport, you know, or there's electric scooters, um, but there aren't that many, um, uh, you know, re uh, uh, practical forms of transportation that don't use oil, right? There's some ships that are starting to use natural gas, uh, but, you know, gosh, that's about it, right? And, and so even as we're, if we see personal vehicles moving to, uh, to batteries, you know, and batteries still need to be charged with, you know, largely fossil fuels here in this country. But, um, but um, uh, you know, heavy-duty truck transport, or especially the aviation sector, is going to be on oil for a long time, okay? But if there is a technological breakthrough that displaces oil, um, or for if, you know, if, if, if climate action finally gets serious uh, and we, you know, we really start cracking down on the transportation sector, um, and Saudi Arabia loses some of its importance, and we don't, you know, um, uh, you know it, 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 its strategic importance would slip, um, I think. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, that's a, that's a guess. But, uh, uh, and then, then who knows? I mean, if they're less indispensable, um, uh, you know, then if, if people may be more willing to, uh, you know, to, to, to take a harder line and take a tougher look at, at, at some of what goes on there. Every once in a while you hear uh, from the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia that there is some giant solar plant, concentrated solar plant out, out in the desert. Are, are those initiatives serious in terms of even domestic power supply for these countries, or is this more for show to appeal to the West, which is where the debate is, is much more prominent? I think it's largely the latter. Um, so these are sun-drenched countries uh, and uh, you know they could be uh, you know using solar power to at least generate power during the daytime um, but they uh, you know they uh, you know for a, a lots of kind of complicated reasons it, it has not worked out that well I mean they've given it a shot so Abu Dhabi really uh, you know part of the UAE the richest emirate in the UAE the sort of the largest and wealthiest um, invested a lot of money in solar power and it did not work out very well for them um, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, first, they, you know, their first investment went kind of to the wrong technology. They, they backed this sort of solar thermal, yeah. uh, uh, you know, concentrating solar power, which uses mirrors to concentrate the sun's rays and then drive a, a, a turbine and, and, and generate alternating current. Um, you know, they, they, they were able to do it, but it was really expensive. You know, the electricity they were generating was about you know, about 40 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, uh, it, and then they, they were turning around and selling it for about a one and a half cents uh, per kilowatt hour to their, uh, to their citizens. So, you know, it was massive subsidy. You know, and, and it didn't work at night, right? So, um, and their demand for electricity is still growing. So they, they mostly use natural gas or oil. Um, and because they sell their electricity so cheaply uh, and demand has grown so quickly, um, you know, they really have a, a, a problem with, with, with the energy subsidies that I think they need to tackle uh, before they, they go with solar. 
the, the other problem with solar power is that um, if you're in an inland city in like Riyadh and you know or a city that's, that's away from the coast where you don't have so much humidity uh, at night particularly um, you know the solar can, can can meet that demand there's sort of a single daily demand peak that solar can handle um, but along the, the Gulf Coast there's there's two daily peaks one of which happens at night um, and uh, you know I used to play softball in, in Dubai and uh, at night and you know <laughs> around 7 or 8 p.m. this sort of bank of mist would just kind of drift in off the Gulf and it was it was humid and it just you know stifling and you know if you're indoors you crank up your AC at that time and there's no way solar power is gonna uh, do anything for that so you have to build just as much conventional power generation as you would and you'd only save a little bit on fuel costs what what are the biggest um, draws of power uh, in these countries is it air conditioning or is it, it is. is it automobiles buildings no yeah, buildings air conditioning in buildings is about 70 percent of electricity demand in in the gulf yeah so it's yeah i mean and, and you know buildings were built uh, fairly cheaply they you know using kind of cheap materials without a lot of insulation you know or you know the thermal pane windows or you know reflective roofing or shading or you know sophisticated controls technology so that uh, you know because energy was so cheap so you know, they built cities and buildings you know infrastructure based on really low energy prices so now when they're gosh well, we better raise those you know we got to get a, get a hold on demand we got to raise those prices well, you've got all these, you know, uh, uh, energy-intensive cities, you know, sprawl, you know, energy-intensive sprawl that, um, kind of like in the U.S., it's what, so the, if you think about the U.S. versus Europe, uh, you know, European cities were built in a different era, um, you know, when, when energy was more difficult, uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're more compact, they're, they're more vertical, they're, you know, they're, you know internal rooms are smaller, and um, that's, you know, the, the Gulf is more like the U.S., so even if you raise energy prices, you're going to bring energy demand down some, but you'll never get it in the U.S. to, to European levels, right? Because it's just a uh, you know, completely different paradigm. During the uh, Arab Spring, I recall that Saudi Arabia was, uh, maybe this is oversimplifying, correct me if I'm wrong, but Saudi Arabia was essentially paying for peace uh, so that these waves, these democratic waves, wouldn't affect the population as deeply because they were being pacified. And in a way, this relates to what you were saying about subsidies, that, that the public has gotten used to subsidies for fuel. Uh, they don't want them to go away. Uh, so is that a risk? If, if any one of these countries actually tried to reform their internal structures, that say they, they wanted to do away with subsidies, reinvest in a whole new way of, of thinking, would they be risking popular unrest? Is that part of the calculus in this region? Oh yeah, I mean very much so. Yeah, so so uh, you know, and that is why you know a lot of academics would say that you know these these subsidies are rights of citizenship, and they did say that you know since the, since the eighties they they were considered rights. That made and and you know people, you know, pretty smart, smart academic would say if you touch those subsidies, yeah, uh, you are uh, you know uh, uh, tinkering with the basis of the social contract between state and society. You know, you know, and you're you know the basis of the state and 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 the, the social compact. Uh, you're challenging that. You're taking away something that the people think is your side of the bargain. Uh, and if you do that, 
you know, uh, who knows what's going to happen. You know, good luck with that, right? Um, so I, you know, I was looking at the data, looking at the sort of consumption trends, looking at, you know, if you take it out a little ways, you know, by 2030 or 2040, Saudi Arabia at, you know, 79% annual growth rate is not going to export anything, right? So they, you know, and they've got, you know, some smart technocrats in Saudi, Saudi Arabia who knew very well that this was going on. So, uh, you know, they, they, you know, you know, they were, you know, impressing upon the uh, ruling families that, hey, these things cannot be rights any longer. We have to take them away. Um, and I did some, some, uh, some survey uh, work. I actually did a public survey in all six Gulf monarchies and asked people, hey, do you guys consider these things rights? And actually, some of them did, but more of them didn't. You know, and I asked them, like, okay, would you guys... Would you be willing to pay more for, for, for electricity? You know, for, I asked him the question three different ways. First, like, hey, how would you like to pay a bunch more money for electricity? Okay, when you ask it that way, most people said, no thanks. Um, but I said, hey, it's in your national interest to protect your export-led economy that you pay more for electricity. How would you like to do it then? When you ask it that way, you say, well, a lot more people would say, okay, sure. And then, if you, and then I asked it a third way and saying, well, how would you like to pay more for electricity? Would you agree to pay more if you got an alternate benefit of equal value? And then even more people said, okay, sure, if you give me something else, yeah. Um, so to me, that said, this doesn't, if, if, if this is the way the public is reacting to my survey, these things probably aren't rights. And this was before they, they started raising prices. And then I asked elites, I asked people in, in government, and I asked people in policymaking positions, and they were way more conservative. They were like, "No, we can't touch these things." Yeah, they're rights. Uh, the, you know, the public will not. They'll 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 be you know oppose it. Uh, in far you know they, they predicted much greater public opposition. Um, and lo and behold, they they raised the prices. They started raising the prices since 2014 on on electricity and on transportation fuel. There have been a few minor protests. There's been a lot of complaining on Twitter. You know, in Saudi Arabia, you had a king passed away, right? King Abdullah died in 2015. And the new king, Salman, is, you know, it, on, it was under his, uh, you know, uh, uh, his control when they, they raised prices in 2016 and again in 2018. And as a way of protesting, people have been tweeting King Abdullah's picture, the very cautious king who wouldn't touch prices, uh, you know, as a kind of a way of protest. So there've been, you know, there've been more vehement protests, but, but mostly pretty mellow. I mean, if you you know, your electricity bill doubles and you tweet a picture of the ex-president or the ex, you know, the former king. You know, I mean, it's not exactly uh, great evidence that the academic theory was correct, right. right? I mean, to me, it says, well, actually, that theory is probably wrong. But with the unrest in Venezuela, I can't help but think about Latin America in this, that when subsidies go away, especially leaders like this would be thinking, we don't want that to happen here. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so Venezuela, yeah, I mean, so an OPEC country, Indonesia as well, too, you know, Indonesia, former OPEC country, overthrew heads of state because of, you know, partly because of fuel price increases. So, yeah, I mean, that makes them cautious. To, to go back to the climate uh, concern uh, for a moment, you're talking about these two peaks uh, of, of energy demand on the coast, but Saudi Arabia, obviously, it's a desert, it has high demand. So... If, if that's the case, and these giant solar projects that we see are, are mostly just for show, window dressing, how are these countries approaching climate change, or are they just kind of staring into the abyss and 
have no idea what's going to happen, or or they know what's going to happen, but they're riding it out. Yeah, so, I mean, it, you know, climate change is a really, really tough problem for the Gulf, right? So the Persian Gulf. I mean, it's a, you know, I describe it as kind of like a lose-lose situation for them, right? Um, so if climate action fails and, you know, the temperatures continue to warm, uh, you know, guess where, you know, the, some of the earliest victims of, of, of climate damage are going to be, right? It's going to be the Persian Gulf, right? They have already, you know, so... Two summers ago, the temperature on the thermometer in Kuwait City hit 129.2 degrees Fahrenheit, right? Um, so, you know, it, it set a new record for the Eastern Hemisphere and probably a new world record because a lot of people suspect that Death Valley number from whatever it was, 1911 or what, you know, is, uh, is inaccurate. Um, and so, uh, you know, that part of the world with, you know, at current sort of business as usual levels of, of greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2070, 2080 will have extended periods where it's just too hot for human habitation, right? Too hot for people to survive, right? Even healthy, uh, you know, sort of healthy human beings would not be able to survive uh, this century, right, in, in that part of the world. Uh, uh, you know, so, so, so for the continued inhabitability, for, you know, year-round inhabitability of that part of the world, they need climate change to succeed, climate action to succeed, right? Um, however, right, um, you know, the success of climate action um, doesn't bode well for, you know, these countries to get 90%, 80-90% of their government budget from fossil fuel exports, right, from, from, from oil exports. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough one, right, on, on the face of it. Um, that said, they are developing some pretty sophisticated uh, uh, policies uh, around climate, and you know, smart policies too. Most of them, um, I can, you know, if I have time, I'll give you a couple of them. Um, so, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, the you know, the largest oil company in the world, that's the state-owned uh, oil company in Saudi Arabia, is investing heavily uh, and very quickly in petrochemical uh, uh, production. Right, so. Uh, producing uh, uh, you know, precursors to plastics, you know, everything from auto parts to paint to, you know, uh, simple plastics to, uh, you know, toothpaste or, you know, and um, uh, petrochemicals, is, you know, using oil as a feedstock, you don't burn the oil. It's a, it's a feedstock and the, the, you know, it's sort of a, you know, sort of climate compliant use uh, of oil. The, the, the carbon is largely locked into the, the product, right? So as long as you don't burn that plastic cup, it's almost, it's like a, a sequest, form of sequestered carbon, right? Um, so, and plastic demand, by the way, is growing faster than oil demand, right? So, and there's a lot of problems with, um, with plastic, as we know, with disposal and whatnot, but putting that aside, I mean, I, I would argue that's a smaller problem than the problem of climate change. Um, the, another thing that they're doing is uh, the Saudis produce crude oil uh, with a much at a much lower carbon footprint than anybody else on Earth, really. Uh, you know, with a minor exception of Denmark, uh, which doesn't produce very much oil. Uh, uh, the Saudis produce their, their their carbon emissions in the process of of, of, of producing oil are extremely low. Um, they've eliminated just about all of their flaring, so they don't flare off natural gas when they're producing oil like we do in the U.S. and you know, Nigeria, Iraq, Russia, et cetera, Iran. Um, 
And so, so the carbon footprint, if you're burning a tank of, of gasoline uh, made from Saudi crude, you're going to emit about something like 20% less carbon than you would if you're burning a tank of gasoline from, uh, from Canadian oil sands crude, where the carbon emissions for producing that stuff are really high. So some countries have very, very high carbon footprints for their, their oil production. Um, so they are going to start touting that, I think, and trying to brand uh, uh, their gasoline and their, their oil products as low-carbon products. And if you think about oil as being necessary, even in a climate-stressed world when we don't have any other transportation fuel, transportation services are still necessary. Um, and even if you know, oil demand plateaus and maybe starts to trend down at some point in the future, the Saudis are making a pretty strong argument for themselves that, well, we're the most responsible supplier of crude oil. We've got the cleanest crude oil, um, and uh, you know we sh and you know the cheapest to produce crude oil. So we're going to be the last man standing based on our costs. But you know we should also be, uh, you know, the last man standing based on our on our environmental credentials. So so that's I think the other countries are lagging behind. I think, but that's where, where Saudi is on this. Like to open it up to your questions. Uh, if you have a question, come on up to this uh, microphone, and we'll try to address it. If we didn't, we can come right up here. Yep, and we'll line up to this microphone. So you spoke on um, how the Saudis and a lot of the Gulf regions are starting to actually get to the point where they're almost using all the oil they're creating uh, to a point. Um, with green energy and everything else that's coming along, what do you think, uh, do you think they'll become like a sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to foreign policy for the U.S. when that does happen, where they aren't supplying, they aren't being able to supply or it really makes a dent in the market or anything like that? You know, I, it's a great question. It's, it's, I don't know, uh, right? So, um, so they're only, they're consuming about a third of their oil production now, so they're still exporting two-thirds of it, most of these countries, right? Um, you know, the question is, if oil demand drops and if their oil income drops, right? You know, so I think, you know, these, these countries, their governance is based on oil rents, right? Oil income. If that goes away, you know, they, you know, they, they'll have to, they have to diversify their economies. They have to move into other sectors. Now, there's no other economic sector that that brings profits like you know the oil business where you you spend five bucks a barrel to produce oil and you sell it for fifty or a hundred dollars right when you diversify your economy you're not going to get those kind of returns you know from any other sector right it, I mean there are rents that exist in other sectors but they get driven out by competition over time so they're they're what that'll probably what'll probably happen is that they'll have a ch that something will have to give right. They won't have all that patronage money to hand out to their citizens, you know, in, in various forms. They'll either have to respond with more, you know, they have two other sort of rough, rough policy levers. One of them is more repression. The other one is more democracy, right? So if they if they don't have the patronage uh, uh, to hand out, they've got to respond with, you know, they got to repress more or they got to open up more. And I'd say kind of country by country, you know, depend on, on what, what, what happens. Thank you. So 
Um, I have a silly question and a serious question. So my silly question has to do with air conditioning, which as you mentioned is one of the main sort of sources of energy consumption. So this is to the women in the room, like here in the US, how many of you are freezing in your office in the summer? Like I know I am, right? So to, to what extent, and, and, and my, I've only been to Dubai one time, but my impression is that all, like most of their buildings are super air conditioned, like cold. So to what extent is there something to do about, you know, sort of cultural awareness that, you know, maybe buildings don't have to be heat cool to, you know, 55, maybe like 72 is a decent, you know, temperature, and then, then maybe that would decrease the energy com consumption. And so, so that was the silly question. The serious question has to do with Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and I know we're actually going to have a forum on Yemen coming up. If you can comment about the Saudi involvement in Yemen and how do you see that unfolding? Thank you. Yeah, so... So on your silly question, it's not so silly, actually. Um, you know, uh, over air conditioning, you know, I've seen studies that, that look at it, and it, it's almost like a status symbol um, if you over air condition something and make it really cold. Like, there was a, uh, I think a New York Times reporter went around to different shops in, in Manhattan checking the temperature and then sort of checking the, you know, the, like the, you know the type of uh, uh, of merchandise, and, and and so like the you know Bergdorf Goodman was the coolest, and you know the Kmart in in, in Manhattan was the warmest. You know so um, so there's a bit of that um, uh, going on here, and that certainly holds true. You know generally speaking, in, uh, 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 in the Gulf, um, the government. So so some of the more um, energy stress governments, like the one in Dubai, has uh, they have set temperatures for their own offices, for government offices at, I think it's 24 degrees Celsius, which I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's pretty warm, right? Um, it's, it's kind of uncomfortably warm. Uh, and they, uh, um, you know, that, that was based on something that, that uh, at Japan, right after the uh, Fukushima disaster, where, you know, uh, their, their, their power generation, their nuclear power plant went offline. Uh, they, um, they raised, uh, uh, you know, they set, set a mandatory temperature. Um, and uh, uh, so there is some there's some attention to that, uh, you know, to, to kind of dialing back from these uncomfortably cold temperatures. Um, uh, on Yemen, on Saudi and Yemen, um, you know, it's not my area of expertise. Uh, I've I, I, you know I, I talk about it a little bit. Um, you know, I have you know you know many very educated friends in the Gulf who take the what they see as an Iranian threat in around the region and even in Yemen uh, fairly seriously. Um, you know, I mean, I I think that you know I, I mean you know I have yet to be convinced that uh, um, that. Uh, that this Saudi-Iran rivalry, I mean, Saudi and Iran were not at each other's throats. Uh, uh, they had a fairly cordial relationship not that long ago, right? Um, and so this is a, um, it's a, it's a recent development, this, uh, you know, this really kind of at loggerheads Saudi-Iran relationship. A lot of it happened since the uh, arrival of King Salman, but not all of it. Um, you know, it, it predates uh, King Salman. But the war in Yemen uh, is, it's part of that Saudi-Iran uh, uh, showdown uh, around the region um, that a lot of us outside the region see as probably overdone uh, on the Saudi part, especially in Yemen. Um, 
Uh, you know, Yemen had an Arab Spring. They have, you know, it's an, ex it's a, 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 an extremely poor and underdeveloped a, a country. A lot of factionalization there, um, uh, you know, not all of which I understand. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think the, um, you know, you know, I think for various reasons, I think the Saudis have been pushing that uh, probably harder than they should and, and, and need to, and, and created a, a humanitarian catastrophe that probably I think the, you know the United States is going to have to at some point you know do you know do something to, to, to bring the sides together and help them out of that um, uh, because it's just you know it's it's way too brutal and go, going on for way too long. Just a quick follow up, if I could, about Yemen. Like, Saudi Arabia didn't tell the U.S. before, I think it was, uh, you know, an hour before the, the first airstrikes came, did they tell the U.S. And I wonder, do you think that's an indication of any diminishment of the importance of the oil relationship? Or was that more Saudi Arabia taking care of, you know, an old, settling an old score or, or you know, going after Iran, like you said? So the, the Saudis in the U.S., Saudis in Washington, we have, you know, the, the strategic rationale for our relationship was not just their supplying oil to, uh, you know, to the free world at one point and now it's just to the world. It was based around uh, opposition to the Soviet Union. It was a Cold War lockstep strategic relationship. When, this, when the Soviet Union went away, uh, you know, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia started to diverge. Uh, and that kind of that that gap between us has kind of gotten wider and narrow at times. But but um, uh, with the arrival of, of King Salman and his, his son Mohammed bin Salman, um, uh, Saudi foreign policy has gotten a lot more independent uh, and you know a lot more uh, you know sort of forceful. Um, we are not you know Saudi Arabia used, it used to be like Kremlinology watching uh, decision making in Saudi Arabia. I mean they were an extremely cautious player. They you know. The king and his council made decisions behind closed doors. You know, most of us were not, you know, we weren't privy to those decisions. Um, you didn't see the kind of reckless intervention that you see now, uh, you know, including some domestic policy. Uh, you know, both sides. I mean, even, you know, opening up, uh, you know, the, the driving to women and, you know, bringing in live music acts and professional wrestling and all that stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's, Saudi Arabia is changing really quickly now, um, and that is a very unfamiliar place to be when it comes to the king. Yeah. Sir, please. So in the U.S., we have a saying, no taxation without representation. In the Gulf countries, that's quite the opposite, as they are frontier states. So hence the subsidies and stipends and so on. Would you say with the drop in uh, demand for oil that we would see a regime change and perhaps democracy? And second, would you say, would, uh, weighing the two, when we look at U.S. interests in the Middle East, uh, in particular to the supply of oil, is it more so to ensure that regional hegemons don't spring up, such as China, as the uh, economic development and the rise in oil prices is due to the opening of China in 1979, or is it more so to ensure that global commerce it's so, so two extremely prescient questions. Yes, you're exactly right on uh, uh, no taxation without representation flipped on its head, right? This is, you know, if you don't uh, give, uh, if, uh, if, you know, if, if you don't tax people, then you don't, you know, you don't need to represent them, right? You can make your decisions autonomously, right? This is what 
of political science theory says about those rentier states. Yeah, exactly. Um, regarding the reasons that, so you're asking why are we in the Gulf, basically, <laughs> um, besides, you know. Exactly, is it yeah. to ensure that we have a say over the uh, supply of oil, or is it to, in terms of preventing regional hegemonies, mm -hmm. such as China, because China does uh, get about 25% of its oil from the Middle East. Yeah, more probably not. Yeah, um, uh, so there's a bunch of reasons why, uh, you know, the, why we're over there. I think one of the reasons is because we don't want somebody else, uh, you know, it, you know so, so, you know, protecting the, the you know, the, the Strait of Hormuz is probably the, you know, there's about 17% of globally traded oil passes through that strait every day, right? And, and so the disruption to global economies and, and our own economy is probably the number one reason. Um, but um, the countries of the Gulf, um, you know, I think there's thinking in Washington, at least, you know, maybe not completely up to date now, that they can't, um, their, their security forces are probably not sufficient in doing it on their own. Um, I think by that we mean that security forces on the Arab side of the Gulf may not be able to protect themselves from, uh, you know, hegemons in the region, right? Um, that may no longer be the case. They, you know, I mean, their militaries have been uh, have been, been uh, strengthening and getting built up over the, over uh, recent years. But even if the U.S. wanted to give that relationship up. Um, or so, even if the U.S. could had a partner that could get in the region that could give it up, I don't think the U.S. wants to, right? I mean, I think that that um, those bases are are, are useful uh, for us in, in, in other ways. Um, you know, I don't think you know, and you know, you know, Russia or China, um, you know, probably not ready, but I don't think the U.S. really wants them to to control the, the flow of, of oil or have a veto over the flow of oil. I think you know, if you're Thinking about the strategic competition between the U.S. and China, the fact that we have you know, we have a veto over the flow of oil to China is a pretty strong playing card. I don't think that you know the U.S. you know I think there's willingness to spend some money to, to, to hold that card um, uh, you know for, for a while anyway. Um, there's probably a couple other reasons that aren't leaping to mind. I did write a paper on this once, but it's not in my book. So. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I just had a comment and a question first was about the air conditioning so the I think it's the 2022 World Cup's going to be in Qatar and they're going to air condition all these outdoor stadiums in the middle of the summer so that should be interesting to see how much energy is wasted doing that and how they do it um, so that's my comment and my question is um, for all these Gulf countries that rely on oil to sort of placate their citizens and for all their revenue is there one or two that are sort of you know, going to run out of oil in the next 25 or 50 years? It's like the next powder keg. Yeah, so what? So the, the, I thought the world, they were moving the World Cup to the fall. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay, so, so, so it won't be, I mean, hopefully the weather will be nice. Um, but yeah, there'll still be, I'm sure, a lot of over air conditioning going on. Um, Cutter's got natural gas, and they, they have the world's single largest natural gas field uh, that, that uh, sits just offshore, so they've got. So that's how they'll do it. It's all gas-based. Um, so um, countries to watch uh, in terms of unrest. Well, Bahrain is the obvious one, right? So Bahrain had a very virulent Arab Spring with, you know, something like a quarter of the, you know, a, you know, the crowds were estimated at sizes that were like, you know, a quarter of the population of, of Bahrain um, that got, you know, uh, 
brutally repressed, right? Uh, you know, there was a big crackdown by Bahrain, uh, Bahraini and Saudi and Emirati security forces uh, uh, came in and you know, started cracking heads and, um, uh, and, and, and put, put, put down the Arab Spring uh, demonstration that, you know, was arguably on the cusp of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know being taken over, right? Um, so it was a, a, a pretty serious uprising. You know, Bahrain is is 70, 60, 70 percent uh, a Shia and, and and you know sort of you know the the Sunni um, elite uh, uh, minorities. You know, it's a, it's a sm smaller part of the population, so they've got uh, they've got sort of a demographic uh, 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 you know sectarian issue there. But I think Oman is the interesting one to watch. Um, Oman, I think, is it's the Switzerland of the Middle East. If anybody hasn't been there, I you know I thoroughly uh, uh, urge you to go. I mean, it's, it's a stunning place that the, the ruler of Oman, I once described him as, uh, uh, you know, tending to his country like, you know, Martha Stewart uh, tends to a, uh, you know, a, a home. Um, you know, really just, um, you know, there, there's like a sort of a, you know, gorgeous, uh, you know, fort atop just about every mountain. You know, there's beautiful vistas with, you know, the, the, the date palms and these sort of foliage uh, irrigation channels and, you, know, you you have there's a law that says you have to wash your car once every two weeks, and if you have a window unit air conditioner, you've got to have this little lattice wooden box over the unit so it doesn't look ugly when it when it sticks out. I mean it's uh, um, and it's Switzerland also in that it likes to mediate. Um, you know it has this sort of neutral uh, mediating role uh, between Iran typically and the and, and its Arab neighbors uh, on the on the other side of the Gulf. Um, but Oman has, you know, the same guy has been running Oman, Sultan Qaboos, since 1970. You know, he's just undergone treatment for cancer. Um, you know, he's, um, uh, you know, and the problem with, with him is that he has not named a successor. Uh, you know, normally these, these rulers are building up cults of personality kind of decades in advance uh, and started devolving uh, responsibilities to a successor. Well, Sultan Qaboos has not done that. I mean, it's still a, a big surprise. Um, the people I know that work in Oman, everybody is petrified as what is going to happen when he finally dies, um, and, and and nobody really knows. Uh, and you know, and some of Oman's neighbors are, uh, you know, there's a big sort of imbroglio in the Gulf over Qatar. Um, you know, the Saudis and the Emiratis have started blockading Qatar. Oman has kind of is sort of emerging on the Qatari side. They've kind of taken over some of the Dubai's trade, uh, you know, uh, uh, connections with 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 Qatar, and so they're they're kind of falling out with uh, with the two power brokers in the Gulf. Omanis are now, uh, and there's some you know some worries about what what could happen if there could be a succession crisis or if there could be, you know, two contenders for the uh, uh, you know for the throne, if you will, in Oman. Uh, you know, you might have, you know, one of the Gulf monarchies, you know, UAE or Saudi backing, you know, one or the other. And it could, you know, so it could, there could be a major issue there. Uh, so I think Oman, for a bunch of reasons, is, is one that, that I, I worry about uh, to watch. Thank you. Hello, sir. With Qatar exiting uh, OPEC and other countries threatening to follow suit, do you feel that... Saudi Arabia and OPEC as a whole, are they losing control over their uh, oil exports as a whole? And if so, how do you see this affecting the world's economy, in particular the Western economies? Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, so Qatar is such a small oil exporter that they don't really, you know, materially affect OPEC, um, you know, and, and they're, they, they've kind of lost a lot of their influence because they're on the outs with the Saudis. So, so Qatar produces about 600,000 barrels a day, which is about half of what the Eagleford Shale in South Texas produces, right? So leaving out the Permian in Texas, so, so it's really just one play in Texas, half of that. So it's not a big... Um, uh, it's not a big oil producer. Uh, cutters who get, you know, they get uh, uh, gas is really their 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 big export. Um, however, um, a lot of people do wonder about OPEC. Uh, you know, U.S. So so, you know, the, the, what's really weakened OPEC is the shale oil growth of shale oil in the U.S. You know, adding six million barrels a day of oil production in the U.S. since 2010. Uh, that has put a lot of pressure on OPEC. It's taken away a lot of OPEC's ability to, um, you know, to cut cut production and and, and goose prices. Um, and so, what shale has done one of the one of the sort of geopolitical downsides of shale is that it's pushing Russia and Saudi Arabia together. They're kind of making common cause uh, because now, if if OPEC wants to affect oil prices and bring oil prices up, they need they need Russia on board. Uh, they can't really do it without. They need to have two of the three big producers on board to cut. And so, so Saudi and Russia are making common cause because of shale through through OPEC. Um, now, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. consider OPEC. You know, they kind of look back to the 1970s and say OPEC is this bogeyman. They uh, sprung the Arab oil embargo on us and uh, you know quadrupled oil prices in the U.S., which is true. Um, but these days, OPEC is kind of a different animal. And actually, I would argue the main beneficiary of OPEC's cuts and OPEC's pushing up of oil prices is the U.S., U.S. oil producers, namely, right? So, you know, U.S. Uh, producers, there's thousands of independent producers. They don't take marching orders from any government. They, 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 they produce oil based on market signals. And to the extent that OPEC's pushing up oil prices, they're helping uh, producers in the U.S. probably more than anybody else. Kind of an irony. Last question. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, the future of the Gulf and the, yes, the future of the Gulf in regards to climate change. I read a number of years ago that it is predicted by the end of the century that uh, global temp if global temperatures increase the way that scientists expect they will. Uh, that it will be physically impossible for the Hajj to occur in Mecca. Uh, fortunately, the Gulf doesn't have the masses of humans that South Asia does, and Sub-Saharan Africa will in the future. But to what extent will uh, the Gulf address and deal with uh, potential environmental refugees owing to the inhospitability of such immense temperatures? Good question. Yeah, I don't, I mean, so you know, I, I talked a little bit about how the how those temperatures were affecting the Gulf, those you know that that sort of you know increase in temperature. But all equatorial countries are going to be affected by. It. I mean, the Gulf is particularly a hot area, but you know, I mean, India and, and Pakistan and, and you know Bangladesh, I mean, really populous places, are also on the fringes. Uh, and you know that you know if 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 um, you know. I think you put your finger on it. I mean, there's going to, you know, if, if a place gets uninhabitable, uh, those people aren't just going to stay there and die. They're going to go somewhere else, right? And so where do they go? I mean, they're going to head to probably temperate regions, right? Now, 
the other side of this whole thing is that um, some of you know northern countries uh, where aren't, there aren't a lot of people are going to probably they're going to warm up and some of their land is going to become more valuable and more arable and you know able to you'll know, be able to grow wheat further north so um, you know so they'll be you know they'll be able to handle more people um, uh, in some of those places um, some of those countries also happen to be oil producers um, right so like Russia for example um, you know it makes for interesting bedfellows and interesting sort of you know juxtapositions when you have you know oil right now you've got a lot of oil oil producing countries that are sort of you know acting in kind of an obstructive manner in, in climate talks caucusing together I think those you know at some point those those countries may go their separate ways I think you know I mean you know a country like Russia is going to be under less pressure uh, to act quickly uh, take climate action quickly because it's you know it's probably going to get a, a GDP benefit uh, you know possibly from, from, from climate change whereas you know uh, countries that are on the equator, much more climate stressed, are going to have uh, a much harder time. Um, as for you know, poor, populous countries that live in equatorial areas, I think it's going to be you know lots of migration is probably going to be what happens, unfortunately. So uh, a program note here: there are books for sale at the end, and uh, we're going to move the tables around and take the microphones away. But then Jim is here; he'll be able to sign books after he gets another beer. Uh, so I'd like to thank Jim. I'd like to thank all of you for being here. A fascinating talk. Have a good night. Thanks, everybody.